0: Hello, and welcome to Heart Failure Beat Healthy Living, a podcast brought to you by the Heart Failure Society of America. I'm Lucy West, cardiology clinical pharmacist at Tufts Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts, and I'm pleased to bring you our latest episode of the podcast. Today's episode is on the basics of heart failure, part two, heart failure treatment best practices. Our first guest today is Randall Starling, who is a professor of medicine at the Kaufman Center for Heart Failure at the Cleveland Clinic and former president of HFSA. He is also Robin Gage's doctor. Robin Gage is a heart failure patient survivor. She is inspired daily by her second opportunity at life after her death-defying heart failure diagnosis. Our final guest today is Kate Hillgartner, who is an advanced heart failure nurse practitioner at MedStar Washington Hospital Center. She believes that knowledge is power and that providers are on this journey together with their patients. Welcome to the show, everyone. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having us. Welcome. Excited to have you all here with us today. So let's jump right in with Dr. Starling. I'm going to start with a question I know patients and caregivers often ask. What can patients do to stay out of the hospital, live longer, and overall prevent worsening heart dysfunction?
1: Thank you, Lucy, that's a great question. It's very comprehensive and it's very patient-centered. So let me jump right in and give some high points. So we always talk about diet and why is diet important? And I will ask a patient somewhat naively, perhaps, are you on a special diet? I try to find out how much education they've had and what their practices are. I asked them, who cooks the meals? Where do you go to get your food? Just to try to understand a bit about their background, acknowledging that different cultures have different practices. How does that affect heart failure? Well, primarily it's related to sodium. Sodium is what is in salt or sodium chloride so traditionally patients have been educated don't use salt and watch out for the sodium it's interesting that some patients after a little bit of education will come back and say i don't have any more swelling i changed my diet i got rid of the salt shaker so that's number one The next thing I would mention is medications. And medications is a moving target in that providers, whether they're pharmacists or physicians or nurse practitioners, we like to prescribe medicines because we believe in them and we're trying to help our patients. So one of the big things that's important is how many medicines, how many times a day, are there side effects? So we want to encourage patients to take their medications, but at the same time, if a patient stops a medicine, we want to know about it so we can work with the patient and try to overcome whatever obstacles there are. Number three, we think that follow-up appointments are extremely important, especially after a patient has Unfortunately, you've been in the hospital. We will typically see a patient at seven days or less and a few weeks later after they've been in the hospital. When you meet your provider for the first time, they will outline a plan and that plan will include potentially testing, looking for what may be the cause of the heart failure, Little will include follow-up because we typically don't change or start all the medicines in one visit. Sometimes it will take a series of visits. Next is open communication, and I will combine with that education. As Kate mentioned during her introduction, knowledge is power. So the more I can educate a patient to understand their condition and how I'm thinking, I think the more successful that patient's outcome will be. So communication, education, and some of the new things that we now have at our disposal are virtual visits. So we can connect with patients virtually, sometimes more often, put away with distance barriers. And at our particular hospital, our electronic medical record has a feature called MyChart. And that enables me to communicate regularly, frequently, and literally at the same day with a question, with the results of a test, etc. So I'll close my response to this question by emphasizing the importance of open communication with the team, education, and the patient is really a very important member of the team. It's not about us, it's about you and being linked to your providers. Thank you.
0: Thank you, and I can't agree more. We've talked about that a lot on this podcast. How important the patient and their caregivers are to our overall team, and that indeed was a comprehensive uh, approach to that and uh, to that question. So, thinking about diet, keeping an eye on the sodium, medications, taking medications as prescribed, coming back for follow up appointments to optimize care and always remembering that knowledge is power. So being open to education and having open communication with your providers at all times. Can about sum it up for you?
1: Yeah, thank you.
0: During clinic visits or when patients are hospitalized, they're often asked, how far can you walk before becoming short of breath? Or do you feel short of breath when walking upstairs? Kate, can you please share with us and the audience why we ask about activity level and what we're trying to assess there?
2: That's a great question, Lucy, and a common question. Patients must think we can't remember what they tell us from one visit to the next. But really, we ask patients about activity level to assess what is called functional class. And functional class really focuses on exercise capacity, and it gives us clinicians insight to the symptomatic status of the disease. We place patients into classes, into classes one to four based on their symptoms, class one being no limitations with activity, progressing to functional class four in which patients have symptoms of shortness of breath, discomfort, or fatigue, even at rest. Patients can fluctuate between these classes. So it's not only important for us clinicians to assess this at every visit, but also to document this so we can monitor for signs and symptoms of progression of the disease. Fluctuations between classes can also often be very subtle. In fact, oftentimes patients have been compensating for their symptoms by actually doing less and less over time without realizing it. And oftentimes if patients come to clinic with a family member, they may state that they've been doing a certain level of activity. But really, when you take some time to ask them, they may have not really done that same activity for several months um, in the past. So in addition to that, a lot of our patients have other comorbidities like lung disease or frailty, which may limit their ability to be active. So this takes a lot of time talking with patients, uh, knowing patients, and sometimes it takes some time to tweet out the subtle details and the change in their functional class. So we spend a lot of time talking p- to patients about this, and I'm sure Dr. Starling does as well. And the importance of this is really to determine the timing of referral for advanced heart failure therapies and determine if patients are transitioning from a stable heart failure condition to a more progressive advanced heart failure, which oftentimes is difficult for us to predict. And sometimes, unfortunately, if referrals for advanced heart failure do not occur and patients have progressed to really what we would define as end-stage heart failure, They may be, unfortunately, ineligible for advanced heart failure therapies. So it's really routine practice for us to continually assess this and to continually uh, ask our patients every time we see them kind of what their activity level is.
0: Absolutely. It's such an important marker at every time period. So again, I think it's important for patients to understand why we ask that question every time. So thank you for that. Now, one of my favorite parts about this podcast is getting to talk to our patients. So, Robin, I'm going to pass it over to you now. When you monitor yourself at home, what signs or symptoms are you looking for on a daily basis? And how do you know when you should contact Dr. Starling?
3: Um, Mostly blood pressure highs, extremely high or blood pressure lows that are not affected by the medicines I've been prescribed. So, I will typically check my blood pressure two or three times a day and notate where my target range is and if something has affected that. Um, Most of the time I'm really good from my recovery from my heart failure, but I'm a heart failure patient that has a very stubborn diastolic number that likes to creep high as the day goes on. So that's something that I have to keep an eye on for my heart failure success. Awesome.
0: And as you talked about, you know, you're monitoring your blood pressure more frequently. I think it's important for our audience to know that each patient and what you should be monitoring at home might be a little bit different and how frequent you need to be monitoring. So I would talk to your doctor about that and find out, you know, how often should I be monitoring my blood pressure and heart rate? Um, Most folks should be weighing themselves every morning, uh, stepping on the scale to see how their fluid is or maybe. Making sure that their weights are stable. And like Kate mentioned too, you know, thinking about how your activity levels are changing at home, you might only see your doctor every couple of months. So making note if you feel like you're becoming short of breath more frequently when you're taking stairs or walking longer distances, that may be a time to call your doctor and let them know that that's a change that's happening and you might want to get checked out sooner. Now, Dr. Starling, we've had a couple of conversations on this podcast about the different medications used for management of heart failure. And recently, the HFSA, in collaboration with the American Heart Association and American College of Cardiology, published new guidelines to guide care teams in the management of heart failure. Can you give us a brief overview of the medications used to treat heart dysfunction and describe how the new heart failure guidelines may change treatment?
1: Yeah, thank you, Lucy. We could talk for uh, quite a long time on this topic, but let let me go through what I think are the most important points for patients to understand. And the first point relates to definitions. So what has evolved in the last year is a new document referred to as universal definition of heart failure and this has worked its way into the guidelines both in Europe and the US. So we classify heart failure based upon the ejection fraction, which I think most patients have been told or have read uh, what is the ejection fraction, which is a number, and that number gives relative information as to the strength of the heart muscle. So roughly about half of the patients we see have a weak heart muscle or a reduced ejection fraction. Another sizable group has a preserved or normal ejection fraction. There's a group kind of in between that's called heart failure with mid-range ejection fraction. And then there's another very important category, which includes uh, Robin, who is with us today, and that's heart failure with improved or recovered ejection fraction. So the guidelines are broken down into those groups. So the big new things that have just come out relate to two important classes of medications. One class is, we call it ARNI, for short, A-R-N-I, and there's a bunch of words behind that, angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitor, and that that drug, sacubitril Valsartan, can now be given to almost any patient with heart failure, whether reduced or mid-range or even preserved. So that's a big point. And why is that important? Because this drug uh, is associated with many benefits, including feeling better, fewer trips to the hospital, and certainly in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, improved survival. So all really important things. The other important point of the new guidelines I wanna mention is another bunch of letters and numbers. SGLT2 inhibitors. What does that stand for? Sodium glucose co-transport inhibitors. And there's a type 1 and a type 2. And the drugs that we're now using that have been through clinical trials, they're FDA approved, are the type 2. The name of those two new drugs are dapaglifazin and EMPA. EMPA glyphosin, and they can be used for reduced ejection fraction and mid-range ejection fraction and preserved ejection fraction. And they have the same benefits as I already outlined, in addition to improving quality of life. So these are the main and truly very exciting uh new things about the guidelines, definitions, and one entirely new class of drugs and expanded indications for the ARNI class of drugs. So, Lucy, I think that we are delighted that our patients now have many opportunities, whether they have low, mid-range, or preserved ejection fraction. Thank you.
0: We are indeed very pleased about that. And like you said earlier in your comments, it's important to remember that not all the medications are going to be added at once or changed all at the same time. So having those follow-up appointments to continue to optimize care is really important. I will put in a little plug for one of our other Heart Failure Beat Healthy Living podcast episodes where we go in depth about all of the different medications used to treat reduced heart function and ways in which you can improve access or reduce cost to those medications as well. So definitely encourage listeners to check that one out. Now, another aspect of heart failure treatment is cardiac rehab. Kate, how can cardiac rehab help patients and when should this be considered an option?
2: Cardiac Rehab, for patients who may or may not be familiar with it, is a medically supervised program. It includes exercise training, education on healthy living, and in particular, a heart healthy diet, and in many cases, counseling to reduce stress. It's been known to improve exercise capacity and quality of life, as well as minimize heart failure progression. It really should be considered in all patients with heart failure, with a reduced ejection fraction, and those have been stable for the preceding six weeks, meaning been out of the hospital, have not had a recent what we describe as heart failure decompensation. The goal is really to stabilize patients or to even reverse the progression of disease. And I believe that the benefit is not only physical, but also very emotional. I find that many patients find That when they enroll in cardiac rehab, which are within their own communities, that they find many patients just like them who have similar diagnoses. At our cardiac rehab in our hospital, it's located in a physician office building attached to our hospital. And in the bottom of the office building is a coffee shop. And I regularly see a group of patients who meet before cardiac rehab sessions to either grab a cup of coffee or have a bite to eat. And I think the effect that this has is quite profound on patients, particularly their perceived well-being. And I find that it's very motivating for patients to be among their peers. So for all of those reasons, just like medications that we prescribe, I would recommend cardiac rehab for the appropriate patients.
0: And Robin, my understanding is you completed cardiac rehab and are uh, quite the advocate for this treatment. Can you speak more to your experience as a patient participating yes, in cardiac yes, rehab? Yes, I
3: began as soon as Dr. Starling and his group told me that I would be able to start working with a cardiophysiologist. And he began with stretching bands, the stretching bands, doing reps of 5, 10, 15 and 20 in different sequences every day. When I began, it was very tiring because of my recovery from my heart failure. Then I began using small weights, one to two pound weights to do rehab on my whole body while strengthening my heart during my recovery. Then I was able to begin walking short distances to the mailbox and then to the end of the lane, to the end of the road. And I was able to do biking on level tracks, nothing, with a steep incline. And then I began my new love, which is paddle boarding, which actually uses all 300 muscles of your body to maintain your erectness and balance. And it's like a whole body workout. And here's a feather in Dr. Starling's cap for his work on saving my heart, I'm biking to the Mackinac Bridge and Mackinac Island this weekend. <laughs> That's amazing. That is amazing. So
0: I'm very thankful. Absolutely. I think that, you know, cardiac rehab is not something that a lot of patients are aware of. And so I think just making more patients aware of this option, if it's appropriate, and helping you, like you said, start slow and be guided and have some education as well before getting into too strenuous of activity. Dr. Starling and Kate, any other advice you'd like to share with our patient and caregiver audience members about navigating their heart failure journey?
2: I would just state that it is just like you say, it's a journey. And as discussed earlier, I tell every one of my patients that we're really on this journey together. We're your advocates. We're here to guide you through this, but also to walk along with you and your family members. I would encourage, like Dr. Starling recommended earlier, for patients to ask questions, report symptoms, report side effects or perceived side effects of medications so we can help cater therapy to each individual and also to clarify misconceptions. I would say in closing that most providers, most heart failure providers, find that the resilience of our patients is really truly our inspiration.
1: And I would add, well, there's really nothing to add to that. But what I want to emphasize is the importance for the patient to educate yourself, whether you do it on your own, whether it's talking to your provider. We have, where I work, very comprehensive printed material. We have access, accessible information via the internet, so and the Heart Failure Society has tremendous patient education modules. So educate yourself, communication, just totally essential. We want feedback. I tell patients, I don't want to see you come in to see me with a 20-pound weight gain if something's happening. Just please get in touch with us so we can nip things in the bud, so to speak. And I think Robin can address this better than I can, but you have to be your own advocate. So self-advocacy, don't be bashful, be an advocate for yourself. So those I think are the points I would wanna emphasize. Thank you, Lucy.
0: Absolutely, patients as advocates and an incredibly important member of our team that can't be emphasized enough. And Robin, how about you? Any closing remarks?
3: Yes, I would just like to say for each individual, be patient with your heart failure journey and take it slow. Don't be discouraged. If something on your to-do list does not get done today, then tackle it tomorrow when you're feeling better. Because that day will come when you can put a little check mark on all the things you wanted to get done each and every day. You just have to have faith and keep moving forward. Patience is key.
0: And I guess don't get down on yourself if you're not up on your paddleboard
3: just yet. But That's right. you'll get there too. <laughs> yes. Yes. I've been journeying for six years since June of 2016. Mm-hmm. Wow. So I'm very thankful for all of you practitioners who make it possible for all of us patients.
0: And we're so thankful to you for sharing your story with us and to all of our audience members today. It's greatly, greatly appreciated. And thank you all for being on the show today and discussing these heart failure treatment best practices. We hope this episode helps patients and caregivers alike navigate their diagnosis and heart failure journey. To all the listeners of the Heart Failure Beat Healthy Living, podcast make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform for more patient related content follow us on instagram and facebook or visit the website at hfsa.org patient
1: do you have heart failure and often hear those stomach issues ruined your birthday.
3: You're too tired to play catch, Grandpa.
1: Sweetie, you haven't touched your tools since the carpal tunnel syndrome diagnosis. If these seemingly unrelated symptoms sound familiar, talk to your cardiologist. and Ask about transthyretin amyloid cardiomyopathy, or ATTRCM a rare and underdiagnosed disease that gets worse over time. Learn more at connecttoyourheart.com. That's connecttoyourheart.com. Sponsored by Pfizer.